Welcome back to the Randin Podcast with Rafi and Chandra. Hooray! Wait, there we go. That's the cheer. (laughs) Uh, Today we have another interview episode with uh, Dr. Viyam Sharma. So that one we definitely have to have claps. Viyam, you there? I'm there. I'm just, uh, I felt almost offended by the very rude cutoff of the applause. Uh, (laughs) Oh, we, we we can... Let's Who's keep it going. Him? Thank you. Yeah. I think he's used to it. It'll get to its natural conclusion any second. <laughs> that, that's it. I like it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just going to read your ABC bio. I don't know if you realize you have one on the ABC network. <laughs> this is going to be a first for me and your audiences. Let's hear it. Oh, well, th- th- there you go. So for, for those listening from not in Australia, I think there's like three people. Um, it's the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And this is Vion's, uh Bio, it is. Dr. Vyom Sharma is a medical practitioner and health commentator. After gaining his medical degree from Monash University, he specialized in general practice and works in inner city Melbourne, mainly serving the local and international youth population. As a healthcare and science communicator, he focuses on evidence-based medicine and healthcare systems. As a co-host on Radiotherapy on Triple RFM, his work is also frequently featured on opinion columns in Fairfax Press, and his advocacy regarding COVID-19 has seen him featured frequently on ABC News, The Drum, and The Project. He is also a performing artist, having featured at the Edinburgh, Adelaide, Fringe, and Melbourne International Comedy Festival, and was in the grand finals of Australia's Got Talent. Whew. Is that about accurate, Vion? Does that... Does that... It's, it's, it's strange hearing it summarized in that way, but uh, it's all accurate, I, I swear. Wow, wow. Well, where to begin? So uh, I, I suppose... Uh, we both met you during med school. Uh, I, I think we were originally in the years above, and we both did BMED Sci, and you're the guy doing mag- magic tricks. So we're like, all right, well. Uh, and that's how we kind of got to know each other, really. It was uh, MMC, the little student lounge, I, I, I believe, was uh, where you, you – where I find – actually, that is probably the first time I, I met you over there. Um, I just wanted to ask, since uh, probably the most – different thing compared to every other doctor I know of is the magic. Was it always magic? Was that always the, uh, no, not at all. I mean, this is medical school is where magic started for me, which is actually quite late compared to most people who ever end up doing magic as a hobby or professionally. The typical time to get into it is, I would say like between five years to 10 years old. That's where most people get into it. The classic stories are like, for, yeah, for my birthday, I got a magic kit and I started doing it and put on shows for my friends. And that's the typical story. So I came to magic in medical school. There's another medical student. Uh, you, you might remember now. He's an anesthetist now. Uh, Rob Wingritsky. Um, oh, Rob Wingritsky. Right. Yes. So here's the story, right? Um, uh, we are away on a rural uh, like visit thing, right? As, a, as medical students, you, you see what rural hospitals are like. And... Uh, there's a lot of time to kill. Lots of medical students sitting around, bored. And Rob Wingritsky, this guy, has a pack of cards. And he's showing people card tricks. And I'm like, oh, let's see what's going on. He does a card trick. And I just lose my shit. I have never seen anything like this in my life. I, for, for the, for, I can't remember. I didn't learn a single thing that entire trip. All I can remember is his incredible card tricks. Now, um... The, there was a, the funny thing about it was I almost couldn't understand why everyone else who was seeing these tricks wasn't more impressed. 
So I was like, is this like a me problem? Um, you know, am I just particularly prone to magic in some way? Um, but as I discovered years later, uh, Rob Wingrudski, even though he was like a kind of amateur magician, so to speak, um, his skills in, in magic are actually world-class. Like I can say that now having, you know, 15 years of experience in it. So I was actually seeing some really good magic. Um, and then what happens is I'm now trying to find out the secret to this trick. So I'm asking him, he's not going to say, I don't want to be impolite, but he lets slip the name of the trick. And I'm looking up, where, where are we going to find the secret to this particular trick? It was called Twisting the Aces by the man called Di Vernon. And the, this book that it's published in is really rare. It's overseas. It's in. It's really expensive. It's not any local libraries. And I'm like, I'm never going to find out how this is done. And I'm new to Victoria. And I'm walking past this beautiful building uh, in, in Melbourne CBD. And it's the State Library of Victoria. And I go inside. I'm like, look, I'll try one more library. And I type in the, the name of the book that this trick is inside. Very rare book. And it says that the book is actually here in this library. Because what I've actually discovered is that the State Library of Victoria has a secret collection of magic books. It's really? a secret collection. <laughs> yes, it's called the Alma Collection. It is actually the world's largest public access collection of magic publications, periodicals, and artifacts. Um, but to get wow. access, you have to... Yeah, I know. You have to, you have to show... You've got a genuine interest in the art of magic, and then you get lit in. So, so that's where it all started. Do you go in with a smoke bomb and go, see, magic? <laughs> or, or, or do you like do the Arrested Development? It's an illusion. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you, if you don't if you don't look uh, a nerdy like a magician, then I'm not going to believe you. So, uh, so, so how, how did profile. you prove that you had a genuine interest? Like, what what did? Was it Roman hats? I, mean, I think, I think the very fact that, that I. The, the very fact that I said, oh, I'm after, you know, volume two of, you know, Inner Secrets of Card Magic by Divern, and they're like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, you're keen, all right. <laughs> um, so this, this all started in medical school. I, I just assumed you'd been doing it for ages. No, no, in medical school. And so uh, that was at first year of medical school is when I started, and then all throughout medical school, I was you know, learning these things in the State Library of Victoria, but then also discovered this community of magicians um, who uh, in Melbourne, right? So Melbourne's actually quite a hotspot for magic in the world, believe it or not. Um, oh, punches, really? Yeah, punches way above its weight. Like to, to give you an example, um, I just did a show called uh, Headliners of Magic at Melbourne Fringe Festival and Melbourne Magic Festival within the last few months. The other two or three guys I'm performing with, one of them quite literally won the World Championships of Magic uh, three months ago. And the other guy uh, is a guy called Dom. He lives in Melbourne, but got to the, I think, like the, the semifinals of America's Got Talent in 2019. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so this is you know, just all out of this, of Melbourne. Um, and yeah, it's, I think there's something to be said for the art scene in Melbourne and all the, the bizarre reasons why it seems to cultivate um, people uh, in all these niche art scenes. But yeah, so Melbourne's where it all happened for me, all just because this guy happened to show me a card trick. And okay, so just to so you're at the beginning of medical school. It's a fairly intense period, and it's uh, for everyone involved. It's uh, usually a bit of a shift, right? Like there's the social aspect of it. You've just gone from usually the smart kid in some school into a block of smart kids of everyone. There's all the adjustments that come with it. There's a hell of a lot of uh, coursework, and now you suddenly have magic on on the block as well. H how did you juggle those? Oh man. Uh, so this is not something I'm particularly proud of. Um, I didn't study very much in medical school. <laughs> I, uh, I, but this is actually partly actually a frustration with the study of, of medicine. I, um, 
I, I feel that, you know, the science and everything of medicine is fascinating and, and the human aspect of medicine is very interesting, but the actual process of the education in medicine, it, it actually felt quite narrow in many ways. Um, and it felt like the, all these other parts of myself, the things that I like to think about, uh, ways that I like to think, I, I, that itch just wasn't being scratched. Now, I didn't recognize it as such at the time, of course. You think you're just feeling a bit bored and you know, burnt out or whatever. But no, <laughs> what it's actually is, it's a yearning for something else. Um, and be it the, the, the social aspects um, or, you know, like trying to meet other different people. It's part of the problem in medicine. We, we were often quite a homogenized bunch of, of people. So magic was this, became this kind of outlet for me to do these things. But there were also other things I was exploring at the time as well. I was, uh, I was reading things at the time. Uh, you know, I tried to learn a bit about student politics. It's this whole thing. You're trying to find yourself. I was 17 years old, for God's sake. Um, and magic was just one of the many things I explored. It just happened to be this one thing that took off in a bizarre direction. And what was it that sort of initially drew you to medicine anyway? Um, I... So you're picking careers, you know, when you're what, 14 years old, you're picking your year 11, 12 subjects. Uh, I think a big part of it was being this immigrant ethnic kid, right? Uh, an important value in us culturally is the idea of like education, further education uh, and achievement and kind of coming to the top, all those kind of things. Um, my mum's a GP. I loved hearing her stories from work. I mm -hmm. just thought it was really fascinating, interesting. And I really like listening to listen to people's stories, really. So off the you know, kind of higher end, higher earning careers, which are all the, the things that go into choosing a career, I think, as a first generation immigrant child, um, medicine seemed to be a bit of a natural choice in that way. Like the science, like the fact you get to talk to people, all those other ancillary benefits uh, of a career that I've mentioned, and that's it. But when you think about it, it's still a relatively shallow choice, really. Like You don't really know what you're... It's hard to kind of like predict what it is when you're so when you're so young, right? And yeah. when you actually sort of started working in it, did it meet your expectations, or you know, as you started working, did you think pretty early, oh, I do want to explore outside this world as well? Yeah. So I think by the time I was in final year of medical school and I was getting quite good at the magic side of things. I've realized that going into medical work meant that that's something I'm not really going to get to explore as much as I might want to. Um, so I, I kind of struggled with that for the first few months of, uh, of internship, but I, I tried to balance the, the two out. So I still did, um, uh, in, in my internship, I, I performed at the um, Melbourne International Comedy Festival and, uh, and those kind of things. But then, nice. yeah, so, so getting, having my kind of, Put on kind of both sides of the fence was handy. Um, that said, to answer your question about it matching my expectations, no, it really didn't match my expectations. I, as an intern resident, I really felt like you're just kind of doing what you're told uh, a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, I actually think that part of that was potentially the hospital I attended. I realized that not everyone has the same experiences, <laughs> that depending on the culture in the organization, whether you're rural versus metro, and certainly, you know, which country that you happen to be practicing medicine in. Um, uh, and, and frankly, you know, what year of, uh, what stage of life you, you're doing that career in, you know, I wonder how differently I would have handled it if I was a postgrad, uh, as opposed to, mm. you know, being a doctor at the age of 22, whatever the hell it was, um, you, you bring with it, you, you bring to the experience, these differing, you know, behaviors and attitudes and skills and, and, and knowledge. So yeah, just bringing the child that, prodigy that element to it. 
But yeah, so I, to, long story short, I found the the idea of this conveyor belt career that it, th- th- this very linear career that I should say, uh, not just daunting, but incredibly just kind of boring, really. Um, and I felt like all those other urges I had in myself to explore socially, intellectually, I think certainly creatively, I was like, this is not going to happen for me in this career. Now, that's not to say that that doesn't happen for other people, but there's no way I saw that happening for myself, which is why after uh, I made up my mind pretty much seven months into internship that after my residency, which is to say, you know, two years out of medical school, I'm going to take time off. I'm going to do something in that time, probably magic related. And that's what I did. So it took a year and a bit off and uh, performed at various festivals around Australia and Edinburgh and everything else. And then, uh, and so I did that for a while before coming back to medicine. And it sounds like you did sort of end up circling back to medicine. Uh, and then you sort of, you know, you've started your health advocacy as well. Yeah. How did that sort of, how did that eventuate? How did you decide from, you know, taking a year off, which I would have been, imagine would have been pretty awesome, you know, doing the stuff you love yeah. and then going, okay, well, I'm going to wrap that up and come back now. So I think there's two aspects of this in terms of coming back to, to medicine. First is just the very obvious fact that you earn very good money in medicine and very few other, I'm not sorry, I shouldn't say very few other careers. Um, very few other traditional career paths will kind of allow you to do that in the predictable and dependable and recession-proof ways that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that medicine will. That was definitely a factor. There was also just the fact that I, I think having done all those things coming, coming back to medicine, um, I actually started to really fall in love with medicine. Like it, it really started to find it interesting mm-hmm. and amazing in these ways that I kind of previously hadn't. Um, and I think, you know, stepping away from medicine, experiencing this other thing of, of magic and seeing how it is that other people live really made me realize how amazing and intrinsically full of wonder medicine actually truly is. So uh, in that way, coming back to it was actually you know, quite nice uh, unexpectedly. Um, but then you asked me about the health advocacy stuff. Well, I suppose um, uh, performing magic in front of people, you, you get comfortable being up in front of an audience and speaking and uh, what it's like to have people listen to you and potentially judge you. And and more importantly, uh, to sit with your own feeling that you're being judged, whether you are or not, which is most of the time, you know, people are barely listening, let alone judging, right? Um, so there was a certain comfort I had in that. That combined with the fact that magic has a pretty core value of calling out bullshit. Um, and so coming back into medicine, uh, yeah, there was, there, there was something in my brain about like, oh, okay, well, you know, a lot of people have misunderstandings about how health and healthcare works and that's something that I'm going to run with. So, um, you know, during my registrarship and early days of being a fellow, I'd be writing articles and, and, and talking about things, everything from alternative complementary medicine to talking about bullying and harassment in medicine, which is, you know, again, another form of calling out bullshit, so to speak. Um, huh. But yeah, the point being that in magic, there is this, um, cultural value of calling out something that isn't true or calling out something uh, that people are misperceiving, um, which I actually is, is so contra to one of the values that medicine has, which is to be intrinsically conservative and toe the party line. Uh, so yeah, that's, I think I that was say, pretty like, nice genesis. With magic and you say calling out bullshit, like, I mean, in terms of there's the illusionary aspect to 
magic, right? Yeah. Like we, when you say it, like that seems like a weird contradiction, or am I just reading it wrong? Or it's like, if, what do you mean by what do you mean by that? Like, like okay. the so so explicitly, magic is about bullshitting and lying <laughs> and deceiving, right? On an explicit I mean, level. You could be a wizard. I don't know. I mean, you've got some amazing tricks. I don't know how you've done them. I don't know how. Right. I don't want to know to ruin it all. But it's like, <laughs> hang on, what? Like, as you're saying that, I'm like, what? Yeah, I, I, it sounds really counterintuitive. But yeah, so on an explicit level, magic is about lying to people. But there is an implicit contract that uh, when people are performing magic, they have with their audiences, which is, okay. Everything you're going to see now, there are going to be some inbuilt lies and deceptions and misdirections and uh, and misperceptions. Don't, don't tell me that, that Harry Potter's real. For Happy Harry Potter's real. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, but yeah, it's this is the thing, right? You, you, this is part of what makes magic really hard, which is uh, you you just need the audiences to suspend their own disbelief. And once people want to do that, once people want to buy into the Harry Potter shit. Uh, then, then your job is much easier, uh, and uh, and we can all just have fun within that, um, as opposed to actually saying I've got powers. Um, uh, yeah, that would be that would not be magic the performance art. That would be essentially being a charlatan, really, right? And uh, and many people do that, right? People make a living out of being charlatans and saying they have powers to you know, do magical things and cure people magically, and uh, and that they speak to God and everything else, and their entire institutions and cultures you know kind of uh, are based on lies that are essentially based around literally like magic tricks so to speak um uh it was so look for example uh, my my background is is hindu i'm an atheist but i come from a hindu family and um uh so for example there's a really famous figure who's i think now dead uh sai baba and this man who was walking the earth just you know 10 15 years ago whatever it was performing quote-unquote miracles and my dad would tell me that he can do things like he'll make an apple appear he'll make ash appear out of nowhere and he'll make a spoon bend and the day that my dad really started to doubt all these things is when i performed all these tricks for him three to four years into kind of learning magic oh. and it's <laughs> right now but but, but the, the point being that like he wasn't offended by this stuff i wasn't doing it to disprove this stuff to you and i was just showing him hey dad look at these tricks i learned and one day to be Kadrick and the other day to be making a spoon bend. And you can imagine like what it's doing to his entire worldview that he's constructed over decades. Um, I wasn't trying to, 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 to debunk anything, but it was fascinating watching his worldview evolve in, uh, just due to these kind of you know, silly little tricks that I was doing. What the was life. the evolution? Um, well, uh, he, so he'd known that I was... Uh, probably in, in no accident due to uh, being involved in magic was becoming an, an atheist. There was, again, like I said, that one of the cultural values we have is towards, you know, kind of skepticism in many ways. And I'm not trying to make the argument here that, that what is true, what's not. I'm just talking about my journey. But yeah, but I think when he saw me do literally those tricks that this, 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 you know, godly man, so to speak, was doing, uh, he firstly kind of confided me, like I thought this stuff was real. Maybe he's not doing it for real. And then a few months later, that became, I don't think he's doing it for real. Uh, and then him starting to bring it up with his friends even, uh, mm. not as a way of like trying to convert them, but also having a little of reality check. Um, and you realize that, you know, often a lot of us live in these siloed bubbles with people who we have these shared beliefs with. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you, you kind of poke at the walls a little bit and you realize there's a whole other you know, reality and way of looking at things. 
Um, but yeah, I, I know for a fact that really changed his perception of what to believe and what not to believe in the future. Well, I mean, it's an interesting I thing you say about sort of siloed bubbles because I think like a lot of, for example, medical information and a lot of information that's shared around nowadays, sometimes what you hear seems really obvious, but interestingly, it's how do you get that message to other people who may not be in the bubble that hears that message? Have you come across that in what you do? Yeah. So, and, and you know, I think COVID has been such a good prism of that really, because for once uh, you needed every single person, no matter which bubble they're in to basically have a shared understanding. Uh, and I would say that's been, it's been a you know, partial success, partial failure. Um, and I think that the things that really help with uh, getting through to those bubbles, getting that kind of shared truth and understanding is, you know, stating that truth just for what it is, um, trying as much as possible to strip it away from the politics, away from moralizing, away from, you know, framing the ethics, etc. Now, this is actually really hard for me because I find myself you know, strongly influenced by you know, these political, ethical, social frameworks. But the only time I've actually been successful is when I strip it away from those things. Um, uh, the other thing has been uh, is that you often need to find the the key kind of people that you know influences, so to speak, within those social spheres. Like if if you can find people of leadership positions of trust within those spheres, uh, and you know, use them to deliver their language to their own kind of bubble, so to speak, that's more often than not going to come across much more authentically than someone from you know, a different bubble, uh, so to speak. But uh, that's actually one of the biggest challenges, I think, with the whole um, COVID thing has been uh, how it, it, you know, even simple facts just come laden with the baggage of political, social um, kind, of, kind of weight, which, which really have, it's an enormous amount of inertia that the truth has to, to, to push past. But if you can strip that away, that's what I found to be helpful. On that note, do, do you think there's anything that doesn't have that? Like, it's not like people listen to robots, right? But like you can't just ask Siri, is COVID real? If the answer is yes or no, and depending on which side of the fence you sit, it's going to be political to you. Do, do you think there is a way of communicating so neutrally while, while still being engaging? Like, I, I think like one of the reasons we started this podcast was during the pandemic and it was just, mm. it was just, as you say, so much bullshit information out there that makes no sense. And there was this general people doing the factual version. Like, I mean, I mean, mm. you were out there promoting it and it was engaging, but then you see a lot of the other people, here's a graph without explaining the graph It's like, well, not everyone can read a graph and get the same <laughs> info out of it. Right. Like you got to point out what mm. the bits are. Um, and so we were like, I was sitting there going, Holy crap, we're doing a terrible job as a profession of getting and communicating and having an audience to engage and to explain it. And I was like, well, yeah, I, literally I was thinking, it's like, you're doing it. There's a few of our other friends doing it. And there's a full stop after that. And that was part of the reason of starting this. Yeah. That's a really good point, actually. Yeah. I, I think it was one thing to just you know, say the truth for what it is, but there was, it was a different thing to step people through bit by bit of what's actually going, what's happening. Yeah, it was that. I was a little bit surprised at how little that was happening, um, and the, right. right, only a few people were doing it. I was, I think, the first video I ever made explaining um, stuff about COVID. I, I cringe a little bit at it now um, because I was in it. Yeah, I made some line about how this it should. It's the government who should be doing this. 
uh, and and yet that was reality. Like no, none of this messaging was coming from the traditional authority figures, be it the government, be it you know even the academic bodies for, of our colleges or whatever, explaining what the words mean. Like I think that first video was about um, the differences between quarantine and isolation, social distancing, whatever, and it was just like no one had stepped anyone through this stuff. Um, so yeah, certainly one thing I've, I've learned to appreciate is that, you know, people can be like, I guess, knowledge poor, but intelligent at the same time and, uh, and can be still, you know, like the, the point is that just because you lack knowledge doesn't mean that you don't have an appreciation for, for nuance. And so you can actually get mm. through quite complex ideas to people if you actually just kind of take the time and build towards well, the, the truth. Yeah, I think like, you know, the whole medicine thing you were saying where it, it's like, you know, toe the party line. But I think if you've been in the bubble, you, you can't explain the party line. Like, you know, the like exactly what you yes. said, what's the difference between isolation and social distancing and all that. It's like you come up with these terminologies and it was a crisis and all these people were coming up with guidelines and the guideline people know what they're talking about. But it's not like, they oh, mm. yeah, yeah, socially distanced. Like, what does that literally mean? And the, I just remember like, you know about the only audience I have is like Instagram for photography. <laughs> I just remember a, a series of posts where I'm like, this just feels so wrong. I normally have cat photos, landscapes. Here's a COVID takeoff graph. And I was like, <laughs> you know, this entire flattened the curve. This is the curve that they're talking about. This is where right. we were. This is the exact same number, but it's like, it was just basically an exponential curve. It's like, this is where we were a week ago. This is where we are now. That's what exponential growth looks like. That's what we're trying to flatten. Right. And then, like, I just did it because, like, okay, we are kindly at takeoff. This is going to get bad. So many people messaged going, thanks for explaining. I was like, really? Like, shit, we're really doing a terrible job here. But, but I mean, this is uh, – so firstly proves, I think, the value of talking someone through it. And secondly, it proves that theory we were discussing of that, those social bubbles that we're in. Mm. Um, it took someone who was within their social bubble, which is you, uh, to kind of explain that. It's not, there was no shortage of people shouting flat in the curve. Um, but you know, you're their captive audience. There's an implicit level of trust relationship they have in you. Um, and yeah, you took the time to kind of step them through it bit by bit. I actually remember that the, the first post I ever made at all about any of this COVID stuff was um, to a Facebook group of magicians, uh, actually. And it was, it was really, you know, it was a very tight-knit community, magicians in Melbourne. So it kind of everyone knows everyone. Um, and I did it just, I think, maybe like a week or so before, maybe two weeks before the, um, the F1 uh, was cancelled in Melbourne, which oh, is yeah, right. basically the, yeah, yeah. the massive flag. Like, so the whole reason that I think I have any and all those platforms is what I did in those two weeks. And um, there was the, the big fear at that time was, you know, the fear of fear, you know, don't catastrophize, don't do this, don't do whatever, you know, otherwise, you know, people panic and all hell will break loose from the panic, which at no point oh. actually happened. The fear of panic was you know, you know, the, the most absurd contradiction of all time. But yeah, so I, I remember telling, talking to my fellow you know, kind of magician, so to speak, in this post, explaining bit by bit, this is what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. There's probably going to be lockdowns. We're all going to protect our income in, in various ways. Um, and uh, I, I think because I understood that industry and I understand what these people are kind of going through, I was able to get through to them in a way that maybe other people would not have. And in the same way, I don't think I would have been able to, like that message that I gave to them, I don't think I could give to any other social group. No way. Like it would have come across as incredibly patronizing, condescending. Uh, it would have seemed ridiculous. So I could speak to them in a way that I could speak to absolutely no one 
no one else. Did you get Which, any it pushback? Like, um, from one person. Um, there was one person that, in that group who was, and I don't really blame them for this at this point, was saying that, isn't it just like the flu? Um, and I was like, talked through all the reasons why it was not. Um, they still, they were still very averse to it. But what really helped though was, right, I crushed any um, instinct I had to really you know, make them look bad and silly and awful, uh, you know, despite every instinct in me to do that, right? Um, and it really, I think it worked very well for everyone who was spectating that Facebook thread. Um, that uh, was saying yeah. it was on the fence. It, it, was, it was good. And actually, like a few months later, the guy wrote back essentially saying, oh, yeah, okay, I kind of accept it now. And, you know, so he didn't really lose any face as a result, I think, of when he changed his mind, which is really important, I think. Since you've been at the sort of public forefront, I, I wonder if you've had a similar experience. So, like, I, I work in the Western suburbs and we were, like, point blank first, like, you know, the entire thing with the meat workers, et cetera, getting COVID uh, was all yeah. happening. I had to cover a friends list down in the peninsula and I, uh, you know, never met these people before. I was just helping out a friend. Anyway, everyone else in the theater, this is, we have hundreds of cases, like I wards are shot, da, da, da. No one, then these are all medical folk believed that COVID was real. And I was like, what sort of weird dimension am I in? And they're like, oh, I've not yeah. met anyone. Have you met anyone? I'm like, my aunt is currently in ICU arresting because of hypoxia. Like she nearly died twice in the last week. And I've been on the phone to ICU in America. Mm. Da, 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 da. They're like, really? And it seemed to be the first mm. time. Like, I feel like the, like, you know, Northern South, like the uh, different aspects of Melbourne had such a different experience of the whole thing. Um, that every time I talk to people just from the other health networks, it's like, oh, no, we never did that. And do you find that that's been the experience in the community? Because, I mean, I'm only stuck in my my end of the woods. Um, just to be clear, you're saying experience in the community of what, not thinking it's real? Oh, or no, just no, disparity? like as in just the disparity of, yeah. do you finding that there's a geographic dis difference between what people experience throughout the lockdowns and whatnot? Because I, I know oh, the Western Suburbs. Enormous. Okay. Yeah, in, in terms of like even the, the people's versions of reality, right? So Yeah, uh, yeah that exactly is, yeah. Yeah. So for the first few, we didn't, the ramp up to the pandemic, while all the other countries are locking down and we quite aren't, um, I had this incredible bias because the, the patients I was seeing in this inner city clinic were all people who can afford to pay a GP, you know, a $50 gap payment, right? And these are either university students or they're working professionals. And they have a pretty sophisticated, nuanced kind of view on things. And so in my head, I'm like, oh, like this is what everyone thinks. Or this is what you know, a lot of people think. Um, and the second I started doing talkback radio, uh, the kind of people who call back, call talkback radio, uh, they're an interesting type of people. And that was the first time I got, um, uh, the first hint that, oh, we don't all have a, like a common shared understanding here at all. Um, so you'd either get like the people who are you know, really understood things a lot and were just highly motivated and anxious or the, the complete kind of denialist. And that was my first clue. Oh shit. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm standing in queue, you know, next to someone who may, you know, who was often like, you know, I'd hear people talking about how it's fake and I'm like biting my tongue going like, are you freaking serious? Um, and yet, you know, we're, we're, we're separated by, you know, not even 1.5 meters at that point. And yet, yeah. A, a chasm of, uh, of, uh, of a gap in our understanding between each other. So yeah, you could live in the same suburb and, and 
be very different. Yeah. Did you try to sort of address that and sort of, you know, tailor your message to reach those people specifically? And h- how do you do that? Yeah, so I, the way I did this, uh, and I don't actually mean to sound, sound patronising in any way, it was actually just to speak really plainly, um, an overt effort to, like, strip away jargon, use a lot of, you know, kind of analogies. And it's here's the thing, it's not because, I'm not saying it's because people are dumb. It's not that they don't understand the words. It's because I, I think when we speak in an, you know, in language that is typical for people who are sciencey or medically or whatever, I think people receive that message um, with with any scepticism that they may already have towards those authorities. So it's not that they don't understand the words. Um, it's that then it, then it sounds like it's coming from, you know, the guy in the white coat type stuff. So I, in the first few weeks of the pandemic, before we all had the shared vocabulary of all those words that I mentioned, um, I tried to speak extremely simply um, uh, about these things. Um, and the other thing was, uh, by the same token, kind of going back to what I said, people can be intelligent, nuanced, and thinking just knowledge poor was, yeah, just use simple words, but never assume people are dumb. Like actually still drill down and explain anything and everything you actually need to. Um, yeah, so it's just kind of dichotomy of uh, speak simply and yet you know don't treat people like idiots. Do, do you think there's a change in society, right? Because like, you know, you just mentioned the lab coat and the person in the lab coat telling stuff. When we were growing up, that was the thing. You went, oh, the guy Mm. in the lab coat, he probably knows what he's doing. But it seems like there's a general, like if you are actually in a position of like, you know, it's like if there's a nuclear scientist telling you about the nuclear fusion Mm. reactor, I'd be like, cool, what do I know? But it it almost seems like on, on mass, things have swung the other way of like, Ah, oh, he's a nuclear scientist. Of course, he's going to tell us about the nuclear fusion power plant. Yeah. Like, well, isn't that what he's meant to do? But it seems like society's kind of like the cynicism has infected everything. Or, yeah, like, have you found that's the case? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people have argued that even much before the pandemic, well, even before 2016, Trump, that there's been this gradual erosion of trust in traditional figures of authority. Um, and I think it's important to know that, to, to say that a lot of that is actually well-earned scepticism. The traditional mm-hmm. authority figures being everyone from, you know, like politicians, academic institutions to, you know, like health and healthcare. Um, we've, you know, often been up in our ivory towers and, uh, and either been, you know, either been you know, wrong, so to speak, although, you know, that's all, all like being wrong and getting asymptotically close to the truth is part of what medicine healthcare is. But there are also just a lot of, things we've just been kind of flat, you know, kind of wrong or silent about. So that plus the whole Trumpian era of uh, genuine, di- like, uh, disgust and hatred uh, for, for experts, then going to the pandemic. Yeah, look, I, I think there are certain segments of society who have, like, very much uh, are never going to, to, to view, I think, uh, health experts and public health in that same way ever again. Um, I think... You know, the, the, the internet has certainly going to cause that fomenting of some of that angst towards uh, health experts, that's for sure. So the question is going to be, again, how do we breach those social bubbles and, and try to pull everyone back together? But yeah, I, I think it's been a continuing trend. And, and then, then, then there's, of course, the, the rise of the, the expert that agrees with you, right? So a lot of these people who've been taken off Twitter and YouTube, and we're talking about, you know, like 
that Dr. Peter McCullough and uh, that, that new cardiologist from the UK who's now saying awful things about mRNA vaccines, uh, Dr. Malhotra. Um, th- these are now... News to uh, me. You know, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Right, so so and so here's the thing, right? Like news to you, but to anyone who's somewhat skeptical about the vaccines or whatever, these people are like celebrities, right? This is just the nature of social bubbles. Um, and to them, they have found uh, in these people, just I've just named a couple, um, highly highly credentialed, um, quote unquote, you know, kind of experts who've you know done all the right paperwork, got all the right degrees, etc., just have these you know wrong, awful you know, views. So I think in many ways we're in a very dangerous landscape now. Uh, past that whole thing of um, uh, I don't trust any of the experts to now there is this essentially industry where you can be the rogue expert and you will have this mass cult following and you, know, you can do a lot of damage. Well, it's an interesting time because in the past, you know, it was the traditional authority figures that only had a platform because to have a platform you essentially need, you know, news media to back you. You need to be able to get your story in the paper. Um, Whereas, you know, now there's a whole bunch of new platforms that are starting up, which is giving a lot of people a voice, which can be good or bad. Um, It means that a lot more people have a voice and Mm. there are more sources of information to go to, but then equally it just means there's always going to be a bell curve of variety of information that's available for people. Um, And I guess... Yeah, it's it's difficult because you hope that more good people step up, but how do you know who's going to step up? And like I said, it's very easy to find somebody that agrees with your viewpoint. I think the other thing is instead of, so like I think generally speaking, having a platform is good, right? Like as in if you're yelling, uh, if you're just yelling and it is kind of coherent or at least entertaining, that obviously separates it out. Like it's like everyone was like, once streaming media, uh, music comes in, everyone can be a musician. But it seems to be that it actually narrows the the band because the Taylor Swifts of the world get more listens than the average Joes, but the quality is probably much better, right? Like, And there's not a gatekeeper phenomenon. You can't blame a gatekeeper for that. But I think the interesting thing is that there's been a shift where it's how I feel about something. Like, I don't agree with, like, I didn't enjoy lockdowns, right? Like... But you kind of go, I can kind of see what the thing that they're trying to do is. It's a, it's as nuanced. I mean, they tried the little localized lockdowns. It just didn't work. So they went with a sledgehammer. Like, you go, okay, cool. Um, but it's the, I I like the message this person's saying versus, oh, I think it's critically true or not. Like, the, it's, if you can trigger positive feelings in other people, that's enough. And I'm like, that, that's a, not, that shouldn't be the hurdle. The hurdle should be, does this actually make sense to you, right? But it seems to be more and more, everything from advertising and whatnot is to, yeah, does it feel right to you? Then it's probably right. I'm like, not sure. And, and, I, and I think this is one of the the dangers uh, that's manifesting itself in essentially uh, information becoming entertainment, uh, the, yeah. which is what a lot of these podcasts are. So, for example, to Joe Rogan's podcast, right? Now, like I'm a, I'm massively into like mixed martial arts, etc. So I've, I've listened to Joe Rogan for, for a long time, right? He'd have some really interesting conversations, um, which is already kind of heresy, I think, to a lot of people, right? Like it's, I'm from the world of Twitter where he's basically the most evil person on the planet. You know, he's, he's a person who does some incredibly stupid, re- reckless things and holds some you know, bizarre ideas, but he's you know, not this intrinsic evil. But the point being, um, he, for, for, for 
about a decade had this career built out of having really fascinating, interesting conversations. And the most interesting conversations uh, that he started having around the time of COVID were voices that were dissenting. Like that is intrinsically interesting to hear. It's also crazy and wrong. Some some of the things that he was getting on there, but the, the this is part of the things we're seeing on, on a lot of these platforms. This kind of infotainment model, uh, and when it comes to you know, if you want to discuss UFOs, that's one thing. But when it comes to things that uh, like yeah, you know, pandemics and wars, uh, incredibly dangerous. So I think on one hand, you know, we're saying there's no kind of gatekeeper of the phenomenon, but and yet I wonder for. Um, for, for the really large substantial platforms like you know Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, there is you know some attempt at a at a policy towards you know kind of misinformation, um, and I think it's actually going to have to be necessary for some of these larger entities. The, the 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 question is, are they going to enforce it by themselves, or is government going to have to regulate this stuff? Um, obviously, it's already starting to, no doubt. But the the point is, like we can't go on with the path we are. We need some better level of quality control the question is how we're going to get it it's like the pendulum swing right like everyone was like gatekeepers no they're keeping the information back and we're like okay here's the fire hose and now it's like gatekeepers to verify the information yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah it, well the, the, i suppose the little thing that makes me kind of go little asterisks of listen to all the voices is uh, i can't remember who it was the the or the galileo or whoever like the earth yeah. is round versus flat and gets basically executed for the heresy of suggesting that the earth is round versus flat, right? Like, you yeah, know, that yeah. was the dissenting opinion. That was, like, as much as I, I think disinformation is obviously bad, but sure. I wonder if traditional, like, be it, like, you know, I, I'm all for vaccines, I'm all for the current management plans and whatnot, but you kind of go, there are things we don't know maybe we should listen to some of these outliers like in a total yeah. volume like it shouldn't be like you know you go well do they actually have a point like is the world yeah. actually round um because it's kind of like if you set the filter too high to yeah block all noise you might miss the signal that of something else coming up you know um and how do you do that yeah. i don't know yeah you know, th 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 that's the thing <laughs> and, and I, but, but i think this is it right like we all agree that that filter needs adjusting uh, to control for the, that signal versus that noise. Uh, none of us know precisely what that value is, but we know it's not a zero and we know it's not a hundred, right? So we know it requires some kind of adjustment at least. I think, um, and you know, and, and, but people who are in favor of deplatforming uh, some of these more mm. kind of uh, dissenting voices would say that the whole point of Galileo was like, he was, he was, he was charged. He was tried. He was, you know, awful things happened to him. That's not the same as you know deplatforming someone, and we've got to have a you know, conversation about what free speech actually means. <sighs> like you know, as a, but it's it's not saying you can't say it. It's just uh, yeah, it, it's just well, who's going to which megaphone are you going to be handed, and should you be given a, a megaphone? Well, I mean, it begins like that, right? But then you go, okay, look at the Nancy Pelosi, at, like uh, the husband, I forget his name, but mm -hmm. attacks. Like it begins with that sort of deplatforming, that sort of trend towards, and the end steps are violence. Like this is like, you know, this is yeah. not the conversation that I thought we were going to have 40 minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> but well, in, okay, so in tr traditional rand in fashion, here we are. Yeah, well, no, no, so, so, but, but this is this is interesting, right? So the whole Nancy Pelosi. I mean, for, for anyone who isn't familiar, like, uh, so uh, a cons 
essentially, you know, alt-right conspiratorial thinking wacko uh, went inside her house, bashed her husband with a hammer and said, you know, where's Nancy? He clearly, you know, got some really cooked ideas uh, about, uh, you know, about the left and the deep state and all that kind of stuff. Um, Those ideas directly come from um, some of the voices that have been amplified on social media recently. I'm not saying directly Alex Jones, but those kind of kind of voices. Um, So, yeah, and... That's like and the now... best disclaimer ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's definitely not him. <laughs> definitely not. Just people like Deplatformed. And then, uh, old mate Elon Musk, who, you know, bought Twitter the other day, um, tweeted out, yeah, t- t- just tweeted out, a, you know, yet another, you know, conspiracy theory about, um, about how and why Nancy Pelosi's husband might have been attacked. This is the man who owns Twitter, right? Like this is this is there. Like he owns what is, I believe, the most powerful information delivery system that we have on our planet currently, right? Oh dear, is, I don't think I use it. <laughs> yeah, it's like it just is for like it's. Yeah. There's literally nothing better, and if you and you know if you're not only there's doctors. I mean the. The, the thing that changed my life was was medical Twitter. That's the source of pretty much most of my medical information. Absolutely astonishing resource. Um, and you know, if you want to if you want to know the most accurate, up to date information on COVID, it is Twitter. You go to Twitter. You can you can ask directly the professors who are you know, doing the research. They are on there. It is where all the preprints will be posted and criticised and debated by by epidemiologists. Um, it, it's extraordinary. And yet you know, the man who owns it is, you know, he was just like, he po- he made the tweet as like a bit of a thought bubble. You know, what if blah, blah, blah. And it's like, this is, this is like the, the way that yeah, Elon Musk well, has yeah, quite, well, oh, 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 go on now. No, 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 no. I was just like, it, this just seems like an accelerated version of the Fox News bubble, right? Like as in that took decades, this took like a week, <laughs> but it just seems mm, like mm, tech mm. applied to media accelerate right like because you know if you look at like what kevin rudd's thing is about you know media bias etc there was this slow trend towards right and left media twitter existed at a delivery platform it's like well so did newspapers let's apply a filter now you have this kind of it's just a shift of newspaper like news delivery yeah Mm. 10 20 years ago in the newspaper was the norm way of delivery and in a, at the end of the day, whoever owns the paper gets to choose what's on the paper. Yeah. I guess the question is always going to be, well, so now are, are the problems that we got now worse or are they just different? And mm. that, yeah, I guess I've never really thought about it that way. Like it's, we've definitely got some pretty terrible problems now, but I don't know. Are they necessarily worse than the ones we had when they were just, you know, just a, to a, you know, the traditional um, media institutions that control the narrative? That's all we had. It's an interesting one because monopolies, this was like, you know, I suppose back in ye olde day as well, that's part of the reason governments broke up monopolies. Um, That was more from like a commercial perspective. But, yeah, Mm. it's interesting, you know, where you have multiple completing newspapers with different views, at least there's different information available. Whereas with tech, the whole aim of a tech platform, it's a winner-take-all model. So if you're on Twitter or Facebook or anything, you only win by taking everything. Uh, so how do you here's the thing, foster right? multiple versions of that? So exist- but the thing is, so if you, the, the gap between newspaper and Twitter is the internet. And the internet is probably the only delivery mechanism 
that is relatively neutral. Like everything got built on it. It was almost a protocol, but mm-hmm. there, there is one shining example, which is the internet, right? Like this podcast is going to be on the internet. Everything else is built on the internet. And it was like the most apolitical version thing, even though it came from essentially a military research project. So you kind of go, like, we did do it once. How do you replicate it? But the thing is, the internet is just the internet. It's so depoliticized. The problem is, people are smart. So (laughs) people will always find a way. (laughs) For example, the internet is neutral, but how do you access the content on the neutral via some gateways? Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But but the, but the thing is, it's like we did make a platform, right? Like, as in, if you want, like, cause for hope, like, glimmering, shining lights, mm-hmm. like, there like was paper this was pretty massive... neutral, huh? Paper was pretty neutral too. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I suppose <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a good good point. <laughs> um, should we actually go back to some of our random questions? This like deviated <laughs> quite massively towards COVID. And how society works. I was like, wow, this is uh, not where I thought we'd end up. Um, <laughs> by the way, did you have any pre- preconceptions on where this conversation was going to go? I had no idea. Well, the only preconception I had was that it's going to go somewhere unexpected. So it's lived up to that expectation. <laughs> Excellent. Um, just coming back to like your combination of like career, right? Like you've obviously gone linear career. Screw that. I'm going to make my own, right? Do you think having something as traditional as medicine and then combining it with something that's relatively, like I would say, yeah, even on all career paths, magic is not the most straightforward one. (laughs) (laughs) Just, uh, just, yeah, understatement of the century. And then now you've got like like the radio and presenter and all that stuff. How have you found, like basically you're crafting your own path, right? Um, Do you find the combination of really traditional, really atypical. And I would say broadcaster is probably a bit more in the centrist, like there is a pathway. Like, have you juggled it? And have you found that to be an interesting balance? And how are you even going about it? Like, as in, I wouldn't have a clue how to do what you do. Yeah, so I guess the short answer is there isn't a way to do it and there's no balance to have. Um, As I split my attention and energy and time uh, between these separate pursuits, there is always an opportunity cost and an opportunity cost in terms of, you know, you, you take time, uh, you, you devote time to one thing, you're taking time away from the other thing. And by you take time away, that means you're either making less money or you're progressing less in that um, field in terms of a career way, or you're just progressing less in terms of your skills and ability within that domain. Um, so that's the, there's no uh, op- there's no kind of way to optimize. I think uh, the the way I split my time and attention between them. Um, there's uh, uh, yeah, so it's it's it, it is tough in that way. So uh, you can imagine for for many reasons why medicine is the the more the, the easier choice in many ways. Like you you do that, you get paid, right? There's no dancing around the fact that it is this very stable, well earning kind of career. Uh, in magic, that's not necessarily true, right? However, um, because I, you know, I realize that uh, I'm probably not uh, kind of putting in all my chips with the whole magic side of thing. Uh, and who knows, maybe that is somewhere that I could have had far greater success. But because of my own, I suppose we'll call it, you know, kind of career and monetary risk tolerance, so to speak, um, you know, I'm kind of you know, splitting my chips more with the medical side of things. And I'm realizing that 
maybe that's the thing that's actually holding me back from excelling more in the fields of magic or broadcasting or whatever it is. Um, and I've learned, I think, over time to just kind of stop worrying about what the right balance is and just know that there are multiple correct paths to take. And, and that's that. So why juggle? Like at the moment, you're basically describing this really tenuous thing of like this. There's three things that are competing for, let's just call it time, because that's going to be the most limiting and applicable to everyone, right? So sure. what are you trying to achieve with the juggle? Yeah, uh, I think I just like doing all three. Uh, I, whenever I just do one thing, uh, no matter which of the three it is, uh, I do it for long enough and I really just start to get bored and bogged down. And I, I don't know how to describe that mental state, but mm. it just becomes uh, stale. I, I think yeah, you're talking like to a bunch of people the- that, uh, yeah, we were sitting down going, too medical, time for a podcast over Uber Eats. Yeah. And then it was like, like, I mean, Chandra, yeah, yeah. So uh, launched a journal accidentally. I'm going to do startups. So this is the right crowd for, for what you're describing. We all get it. So that's it. Well, uh, you're, you're my tribe. No, but that's it. Like, I think that the reality is I actually is accepting that I actually can't just do one thing. And, uh, and mm, I used to okay. think that I had and I used to think that I had a problem with, with medicine per se. No, I have a problem with just doing one thing. That's my problem. There's and, one problem uh, that sort of stems from that that I've run into is then you do too many things. How have you come to, like, I'm sure you've got three that you seem to be focusing on at the moment. I'm sure there's been fourth that you've dabbled with at some stage. How do you decide to sort of, you know, green light or how many to do or turn down opportunities because that can be really hard too yeah it can and look to give you an example at the moment right out of all the things i do magic is probably the thing that's taking like the, a bit of the backseat at the moment um firstly is to, to realize that sometimes you just get a few green lights uh in terms of opportunities that open up and when it seems like a good opportunity i think you've really got to take it for what it's worth realizing that they don't always come by so that's not something you can control. So I really value that a lot of the time. The other thing that I've realized is that um, feeling that sense of inspiration to do something in any one of these three domains for me, right? Um, that if I get that feeling, that inspiration, that's like a finite resource. Like that's, I've got to cash in on that um, in that moment uh, because you try to come back to that feeling a few days or a week later, often it's just not there. And in those moments where you have that inspiration, it's, it's mind blowing how much can happen in just two or three hours. Um, uh. And so often, you know, I, I realize like often that I'm not often the, the, the pilot who's guiding which way my, my ship is going a lot of the time that thoughts and feelings and inspirations and drives will often just kind of emerge in my consciousness. And, and, and at most what I can do is, is kind of act on those feelings as, as they kind of emerge. Um, no, uh, to answer your question, I there's no optimal equation that I'm that I've figured out what the, the right mix between the three is, and I actually don't have a particular master plan on going that this is what I'm going to devote myself more to or less. It, that is yeah. someone. That is exactly someone with a master plan would say, "I have no master plan. I'll take on you." <laughs> <laughs> but, but on your on the note of your um, inspiration thing, uh, have you heard of a guy called Naval Ravikant? So, yes. So I've come across him on my uh, YouTube algorithm. Uh, gosh, those like one two minute tidbits that he has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what, 
one of them is uh, Inspiration is Perishable. Act on it straight away. Um, we'll, we'll link the podcast because he's turned it all into like a two-hour long one. He's got three of them now, uh, but really good. I wouldn't be surprised if that's where I heard that. That's th- That would not be impossible to me at all. Um, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of, as someone who allegedly has no master plan, what is in the sort of near future for Vyom Sharma? Yeah, so I certainly have aspirations within all these fields. Um, so, I mean, medically speaking, that's possibly the one where I don't actually have a, a, a clear-cut aspiration at this point. I mean, I, I'm trying – there are a few things I've got in the work, some some kind of boutique medical services that I'm trying to, to, to kick off and just experimenting and see what's going to work, what's not. But uh, the aspiration there is to, I suppose, step away from the Medicare model uh, uh, as much as I can as a GP. Um, within the world of magic, um, I've now uh, started to do shows just for the purpose of enjoying doing the show, which sounds really absurd. But uh, one of the toughest things uh, that you can do in magic is do live public shows uh, in a way that are also going to make you know, plenty of money. That's actually really quite tricky. Um, requires quite a huge investment. A lot, most of the time it doesn't work out just because there's a million variables going on. Um, so instead of that, my, my two goals of magic currently are to do shows with friends where we know they're going to be high quality and sell a lot and you know, it'll be kind of worth my while. We just get to do what you enjoy. The second thing is um, my friends and I are trying to come up with a live magical experience, um, essentially uh, an installation, essentially, that we can have at various different festivals, trying to come up with a model that's potentially scalable, that we can you know, kind of replicate and, and sell out. And it's essentially a way of kind of using our knowledge of magic and live shows and uh, essentially coming with a product, really. It sounds selling. like magic is tech. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. Um, uh, and what, the broadcasting? Any... Yeah, uh, that is, yeah, so that's a tough one. I, I think um, there's no, there's no clear aspirations I have here because the, the way I've been writing and broadcasting is I've, I've just thought to myself for the last two and a half years, Oh, it's going to stop at any point now. It's going to stop at any point. Um, you know, one, yeah, you know, this weekend the, the the phone will stop ringing, and I, you know, it's just going to be over. And it just kind of keeps going and going. So for the first time in almost three years now, I'm actually going. Maybe I should do something about this. <laughs> uh, and 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 yet it's it's not clear what what that would be. Like on one hand, you know, like I've had offers to to kind of write a book. Got very close to writing a contract, but you know, thinking more bigger picture here, it's like, well, okay, I'll write a book then what? And the reason I say that is books don't sell very much. That That's the end of the sentence. Books don't sell very much. Even like very well-selling books at max, like, like 20,000, if you sell 20,000 copies of your book, you've done very well. That's like 20,000 people. There are YouTube channels that reach like, you know, millions of people in a go. Mm. Um, or, you know, even like a, you know, the, my, my regular 30 minute segment on, on ABC that's reaching out tens of thousands of people, you know, every half an hour on a Saturday. So, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to work out what it is that I actually want from this stuff. Um, uh, you know, particularly as the, as the media landscape changes so, so radically, the, the, the interplay of, oh yeah, the internet and, and, and YouTube and podcasts and everything else. So no kind of clear aspiration there, except to say that a lot of the public speaking stuff, so, that, so that's the reason I'm in Sydney. I came to, speak to us uh, to an organization who heard me give a health and well-being talk somewhere else 
And I'm hoping to make what is otherwise a pretty dry topic, talking about health and well, well-being, because it really often can be. I've heard other people say it in the past. See if I can potentially inject some of that dynamism and everything else that, I, that I've learned from the world of magic and stagecraft and, and essentially just come up with a few really killer one-hour presentations that I can do to um, uh, for, for, for businesses and organisations. And that could be a legitimate career path, something that you know potentially pays worth my while in a way that often broadcasting does not, um, which may surprise a few people. Uh, but then you know, I also really get to talk about things that I want to um, talk about health, medicine, well-being uh, in a way that I think is accurate and bullshit-free um, in um, you know to a really kind of captive audience to to the to the lay public. Not just to one patient at a time in a GP clinic, but you know, to, to hundreds, maybe thousands of people at a time. So those are the kind of vague aspirations I think I have in all those three domains. Like, okay, just it's interesting that you, that's like okay. So if you look at weird analogy, but you know the Peloton bike. Yeah. It's an exercise bike, right? Yeah. There's been on-demand exercise bikes before, and obviously it's got the variable resistance, but like. I went on one for the first time like a couple of years ago and mm-hmm. it was amazing. Like I want one, even though like I live in an apartment Interesting. and like, and like my wife was in the treadmill next to me. He's like, I've never seen you work out so hard. And like, are you okay? And I was like huffing and puffing and the sweating. And I was like, this was amazing. And it was exactly that. It was like the right info presented in just the right way in the right mechanism kind of gets you this product that everyone wants. So like, I think, you know, you've got the threads, like you've learned the stagecraft, you've got the info and you've got the interesting kind of BS free, let's just distill it down to the, to the basics, but the core principles. And, you know, like, uh, like Steve Jobs, like it was a really good presenter. That's kind of like the iPhone wouldn't have happened if it was Bill Gates trying to sell the iPhone. Right. Like, so it's like, I, I would be, we're going to have to do a take two at some point and see how you've gone. Sure. Look, I mean, to, I think you're right. I'm really glad to hear this from you because I think um, you know, the talks I'm giving at this moment, again, they are getting a good reception. And there's no doubt about that because I think, to be frank, a lot of speakers you know, probably don't have the experience that I have on stage. And yet I can feel it. There's a few micro adjustments that can and will be made, I think, as I work on these talks that will just get around. And they're probably not going to be big things, but you know, to, to I've just had that realization now that this is something that really can be incredibly dynamic and that what was otherwise a familiar product, you know, a bike, an exercise bike, or just someone, some dude talking to health and well-being, a few micro adjustments and you can end up with something that just is dynamite. Well, it's not just just from, it's impactful, right? Like it's kind of like net positive for community and world and whatnot, because it's like the iPhone enabled the whole mobile revolution. Mm. That's why... I think, what is it? There was the, the stat showing that, yeah, mobile internet speeds in sub-Saharan Africa are faster than some places of, like, wide broadband in the U.S. And you kind of go, that statistic cannot happen until someone goes and makes a, such a compelling product that there is the infrastructure all that, right? So it's like, I, yeah, it, it's, I think that's a very worthwhile thing to pursue. Um, I think uh, we're also running out of time. Uh, apologies again for uh, running late to start the show. Um, but we'd just check in a few random questions uh, to close up, if that's all right. Um, so one of them is, what's something 
something that you've recently learned or discovered that you didn't know before. And I'll give you a little example. Uh, yeah. Mine was that, you know, the ice cream Hagen does. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you think it's from? Like, I, I would have presumed like Netherlands or something. Yeah. It's from New York. It was just made up a word. Yeah. You can Google this. That's Hagen does it is just a marketing name. Yeah. It was just, these guys came up with like an ice cream. It's like, this is really good. We need to sound, it wasn't even make it sound European. It's just like expensive. <laughs> random letters on the keyboard. It's like Hagen does. Hagen does. Yeah. So that was my random thing I learned. It's just a word. Just, just, it's, it's just a word. No, it's like it's a word. It's just it's totally made up. Yeah. Hagen does. Yeah. God, that is genius. Yeah, that today is... I learned. So uh, do you have one of these today I learned moments uh, from the last little while? I'm, I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, uh, yeah. Chandra, have you got one? Uh, well, I <laughs> the thing with I'm Chandra. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you the story of Chandra. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. So Chandra, if, if for regular listeners, this is not going to come as a surprise. <laughs> if there is nothing that's written down on our little run sheet and you ask Chandra the question, He'll just blank for five minutes and then look around the room and go, okay. I discovered that paper is paper. I've discovered my coffee cup is in fact empty. Did you know this? <laughs> my primary learnings uh, lately have been coffee machine related because that's what I've been getting into. Uh, I'm finally in one apartment in one place for three months. I've been getting into the whole coffee thing. <laughs> And uh, I learned about different types of roasting. <laughs> Apparently, a, cof- a popcorn machine is a great way of roasting as a starting, uh, as a starter popcorn person. Machine. Yeah. So that, that's the next thing that I'm looking into. <laughs> what? Popcorn coffee? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, if you can do it to chicken, you can do it to coffee. <laughs> uh, what have I learned? Okay. So I, oh, there's two things. One is like, this is like really quite embarrassing. Like I just thought um, ponies were like young horses. Like they just grow up into be like normal horses. Hmm. Uh, they don't? No, they're, no they're like, no, I know, right? It's like a, it's like a specific type of horse. Yep. Oh, really? So that, that, yeah, 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 yeah. Apparently <laughs> like everyone, everyone apparently apart from us three knows this. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah. I've just it sounds like a conspiracy to me. <laughs> yeah. Are you sure? The other thing I learned. Are ponies real? <laughs> Are ponies real? <laughs> Do you know, it's funny you say that. I've never seen one in my life. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, think this, I think this is fake news. I think they're just trying to hide the unicorns. Yeah, let's see what Alex Jones has to say on this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You want to take the next random question, Chandra? <laughs> All right. So what about the most unusual country or city or holiday or anywhere that you've ever been? Oh, most unusual. Let me have a quick think. Um, oh, gosh, where would it have been? Somewhere so for me, I'd there. say it was probably uh, went to Ushuaia on the way to Antarctica with Rafi, and it was just a really weird place to be. Because it's literally all the way down the bottom south uh, of South America. And I thought, okay, well, there can't be much around here. But actually, really scenic kind of place in itself. Uh, kind of but, makes but, for quite a nice destination. Well, you see, here's the thing, though. It's not, right? So it's one of the weirdest places because 
buying a car is an investment because there's a limited number of cars that you can have down there. (laughs) People buy cars instead of houses because you can't own houses. Um, And even if you owned a house, it's dark for 90% of the, like, you know, for half the year, it's just pitch black. So no one wants to live there. So houses don't go up in price. Cars do, right? And, And I don't understand why the Argentinian government pays like half a year's salary of the equivalent whatever for people to move down there. So like our taxi driver was telling us all this, like, no, no, I bought my investment. I'm like, well, what is this? Like this, the car, it's gone up like 200%. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> a weird place that we ended up in. And this was pre-Antarctica. And I'm pretty sure they've got some weird things going on with, uh, yeah, introducing one species of animal oh, to yeah. eat the next species of animal. And then that didn't work out. So they introduced it, it, it another was, species of animal. It was literally that. Like, this is literally the Simpsons episode. They accidentally um, killed off this native wolf species. And then they realized yeah. that because the wolves were gone, the, the beavers were just making dams and random parts were flooding. So then they tried to get rid of the beavers by uh, like getting this other species, which then went out of control. So they've now tried to reintroduce a, uh, Similar but not the same wolf species because they actually mm. exterminated them um, back into the thing. So it's been like this multi-stage thing. Along the way, they also had uh, oh, it was basically it's like scalping. It's like yeah, go shoot a beaver. We'll give you like two dollars for it, right? Um, but then the hunters. <laughs> this is hilarious. They had a pro uh, not a protest, but they had an entire session in parliament where they argued about how much per beaver. So like the hunters wanted five dollars and they were willing to pay two dollars so yeah there was a beaver negotiation a beaver eva what? if you like what <laughs> God. it's a very um, unusual strangest, place strangest most unusual place i've been this is gonna sound weird because you're gonna go it's not that unusual launceston in tasmania uh yeah okay it's not like yeah it's gonna sound like i've only ever been to one place no i've, I've been around a little bit Listen, I went there in 2019, but I felt like I'd been transported, like, back into the mid-90s. This place, like, I'm walking down the mall. It has, like, a What's New store and a Sanity oh CD God. store. Hmm. Sanity CDs. And then and Britney the Spears Maya. is playing? I don't know. What you, oh, no, that was, um, oh, who's that group? Oh, my God. I'm, I'm forgetting Backstreet the name. But it was, like, so, was something really 90s. It was, um... I forget the name. S Club. Anyway. S Club 7. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no. It was oh, Jamiroquai. It was Jamiroquai. Oh! <laughs> yes. And then, and then you walk into the Maya. I've never had this in a Maya. If you just like raise your hand like this, you can just touch the ceiling. What? <laughs> what the fuck is this? It was just like being inside someone's house. But, like, it was just... I, so, like, I mean, I, I think a real surprise for me with, like, with, with Tasmania was, like, on one hand, like, visually one of the most beautiful places, like, I think, on, on Earth. Um, and But aesthetically just doesn't fit with my understanding of what a country town is. And that's really, like, it's actually quite rural, several parts of Tasmania. Um, so, yeah, I was, so even someone like Launceston was, like, it was just, I, I felt like I'd just been transported right back into the 90s weird wacky they should uh they should that should be the theme for it really i reckon they get a lot more tourists in tasmania come to the 90s but okay the weird thing about tasmania and especially launceston Mm -hmm. in the late 1800s that was the uh, launceston general was where the first anesthetic in australia happened um there was a statue right on the town square of the guy who gave the very first ga in australia 
Um, what, what do they use? Uh, it was actually chloroform in a... Tasmanian <laughs> <laughs> organic similar rock. to what Rafi still uses. <laughs> um, but there's... Uh, so one of the guys from my department just moved it there. And uh, yeah, so the old house, which was like the original medical center practice, whatever, is mm. currently up for auction. And they're like, yeah, we should buy it and convert it back into something. And there is like a statue of the guy who did the very first anesthetic in Australia right there. Um, so yeah, they were mm. ahead of the curve until the 90s. Then they hit pause. Yeah, they're like, this is peak. Yeah, S-Club 7, it's never going to get any better. Let's keep it where it's at. As they say, S-Club is going to show you how. So, you know, they've been shown. Yeah, yeah, truly. Uh, now, since we are wrapping up and we think we have gone over your time limit, um, where can people find out more about you or if they want to get in contact, what's the best way of getting in touch with Dion? Uh, sure. Look, um, unless no one knows what's going to happen with Twitter, but that's the main place where I'm at, either that or my website. So my, my Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram handles are at Dr. Vion. So it's D-R-V-Y-O-M infirmarian mm-hmm. so at dr beyond uh all my website is uh so you can contact me through that okay so i'll leave that in the show notes um i mean we've covered a lot of different ground if you we don't also have a very typical listener it turns out <laughs> from the random people that occasionally message going where's the next episode but if you Imagine it's a much bigger platform than the 30 or so people that regularly listen to us uh, is. What would be like one thing? Like if you had to have one thing that you could just say, hey, to the masses, do this thing or don't do this thing. What would be one general concept or statement you'd like to spread to the world? Uh, Consider that you might be wrong. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. All yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I think yeah, just a just a, a healthy dose of skepticism uh, about your own uh, views, be they uh, personal, philosophical, or, or or scientific or whatever it is. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, certainly in the last couple of years with, with COVID, there's been plenty of times where I thought something was happened one way and happened the other. It was a very like a very rapid experiment in, in checking your uh, in checking your own predictions mm. and how you think the way the world works. Yeah, I think we could also all benefit from that humility of. The, the fact that sometimes we're wrong and uh, means we should probably kind of other people who are wrong too. That That's pretty awesome. I feel like we should have had a, had a bit of a drum roll for that one because I, I quite <laughs> <laughs> like but, but then it's a, it's, a, it's a really like, you think like it's going to end up with like some amazing, like lovely truth bomb, but it's like a bit of a downbeat. It's like, a, <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and then people go nuts anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, no, I think awesome. it's an actual really good one because I think mm-hmm. especially in this age of hyperpolarization and everyone kind of going, our party is right or our statement's right and what the medical institution and whatnot is like, yeah, there Maybe should be not. some healthy skepticism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Some epistemic well, humility. <laughs> well, well, I'm not up with that sort of level of vocabulary, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to make oh. it sound a little bit better than consider you're wrong but yeah (laughs) simple simple is best yeah all right well Vion, thank you very much for taking the time and absolute uh, pleasure guys look forward to actually seeing like the stuff that you come up with and hopefully uh yeah hopefully actually see you around the trap since you don't live too far away and uh yeah until next time and i 
can we have you back at sometime in the future just to see what where your projects are going? Absolutely, yeah. We'll we'll do a part two and uh, see where I've got up to with the, all the separate ambitions I've laid out in those uh, three separate domains. We'll see. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye, guys.